following sermon is from Faith Bible Church, located in Murrieta, California. More information about Faith Bible Church is available at www.faith-bible.net. You know, I think you'd all agree, uh, would you not, that uh, God hates lying? Yes? Amen? He does. He hates it. It's actually the antithesis of who he is because he loves truth. He loves truth. And even as parents, we sense that when we're raising our kids. We hate lying and we love truth. And God, as the God of truth, our Lord cannot lie. He cannot lie. Even the wicked prophet Balaam got that right. He wrote, wrote in Numbers 23, God is not a man that he should, what? Lie. In fact, Hebrews 6 agrees, 6.18, it is impossible for God to lie. Therefore, when God speaks, it is always the truth, always the truth. And that means his infallible word is perfect, without error, and completely trustworthy. The Bible, like him, like its author, is truth. So it's not surprising that the Lord of truth wants his servants to proclaim his word as truth and explain his word in a truthful, accurate, completely uh, honest and genuine manner with no deviation, no manipulation. In fact, anything less than just drawing out the truth as it was intended is to misrepresent the intended meaning. And it's also, this is the scary part, maligns his character. It maligns who God is and therefore makes him look less than what he is. And therefore, in stark contrast to our God-loving truth, is Satan. And he is the chief liar and the father of all what? Lies. John 8, 44, you know it. You are of your father, the devil. And you want to do the desires of your father. And he was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. Whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature. Why is that? For he is a liar and the father of lies. Satan's primary goal as God's adversary is to deceive, having 2 Corinthians 4.4 blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. In other words, Satan and his demons do not want you to be born again. They don't want you to come salvation. Uh, they don't want you to uh, repeat what Nikolai was, uh, said was as a hater of God, now a lover of God. They do not want that to occur. And thankfully, in the end, truth will win out. All of Satan's deceptions, including the great deceiver himself, will basically be in the lake and cast into the lake of fire. But until that day occurs, you and I, right now in this life, are going to have to guard against deception, against lies, against distortions of the word, against a manipulative and inaccurate gospel. We have to be aware. We have to be discerning. We have to know the truth well enough. Now, you know, and I know you're familiar with this, that lying manipulations are all around us coming in every form, correct? In every form. Uh, there are super cool college professors who are lying. Talking heads on television. The entire networks that are lying. Political leaders at every level. Popular authors. Uh, trendy internet newspapers. Seminary professors. Popular pastors. 
uh, social media darlings. Wake up, friends. Lies are coming at you from every quarter, including inside normal, regular local churches through false teachers. And if you're going to survive in our day, the day of deception, you will have to cling to the truth of God's word alone like a life preserver. Listen, last year, a long time ago, last year, you could say, you know what, I'm having a really hard time, a real trial here, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to depend on God's promises. I'm going to stand on God's word. That, those days are gone, friends. It's going to be every single day that you live and breathe on this planet now, you're going to have to cling to God's word to filter everything coming at you. There's no way you're going to survive without it. You've got to cling like you, it's the only thing that's going to save you. And we're still sometimes acting like, well, I can take it or leave it. You know, come. It's not that way anymore. And you're going to get eaten alive unless you begin to respond to the truth of God's word like it's the only thing that will save you. And if you're going to do that, you're going to appear very old school. You're going to appear like you're super traditional and out of it. You're not going to be trendy. Uh, in fact, the things that you believe are going to be maligned, dismissed, and considered archaic because they're mostly ignored. And uh, what I'm talking about is the Bible is very old, and yet it is the living Word of God. And so we're not trying to come up with new stuff. We're trying to figure out what the old stuff says, if that makes sense. So we want to understand the Bible as God wrote it and draw out the truth. And pastors have been doing this for years, and we want to be in that tradition of just allowing the Bible to speak its, for itself. And Peter's been teaching us, as Second Peter, that false teachers are not easy to spot. They're not easy to see. And technically, a false teacher is only found in the church. They identify themselves as Christians. So not everybody that tells you, I'm a Christian, is a Christian. And you can begin to spot them, not only by the error of their teaching, but also the way they teach, the way they serve. What do I mean by that? Well, I tried to, by way of introduction, give you three styles that are characteristic of false teachers. And they're there in your outline there. First style, number one, is they're authoritarian. They're authoritarian. They inevitably like to rule over their ministry, their churches in a domineering fashion, like Jeremiah 5.31 warns. It says the prophets prophesy falsely, and the priests, and that would be the pastors of the Old Testament, rule on their own what? Their own authority. And my people love it so. Like Diotrephes of Third John, they strongly denounce anyone who questions their authority. They're authoritarian. Style number two, false teachers minister in a man-centered way. Uh, like Jeremiah 23, verse 16, nothing new under the sun. It says, thus says the Lord of hosts, Jeremiah says this, do not listen to the words of the prophets who are prophesying to you right now. Bunch of false prophets during, right before they fell to Babylon, they're leading you into futility. Now look this this next phrase. They speak a vision of their own what? They made it up in their heads, their own imagination, not from the mouth of the Lord. They invent what they teach, and not only do they invent what they teach, but they also design it so it's what they teach is what people want to hear. And that's 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 3. For the time will come, you know this verse, when they will not endure sound doctrine, but they want to have their ears what? Ooh, that feels good. And they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance with their own desires and will turn away their ears from the truth 
and will turn aside to myths. As a result, they preach their own ideas about what people want to hear. Are you getting that? They preach their own ideas about what people want to hear. They direct it, so they manipulate, and they tell you what you want to hear, but they make it up on their own. False teachers make up their own so-called Christian messages of love. You hear it all the time. Syrupy deceptions to make you feel so good. They teach you, you can bring peace through human means. You can solve problems if you just, you know, uh, take responsibility. And you can make a difference if you just try to get along with others. Click a little heart if you wish. But the true teacher is going to be different. The true teacher is going to tell you and emphasize God's absolute holiness and his hatred for sin and sin on every, every venture. Sin, hatred for all sin. The true teacher focuses on man's sinfulness and your absolute inability to do anything to fix the problem. The true teacher tells you you need to first be in Christ and then be filled with the Spirit. The true teacher is going to tell you that salvation is only found in submission to the Lord Jesus Christ and absolute necessity in order for anybody to be right with God and that the Spirit empowers you to love others and a witness in the midst of a hostile, prejudiced, unjust world. The false are going to constantly affirm man-centered issues. You can do this. True Christianity says you can't. And you have to actually affirm God alone's solutions. And style number three of the false teachers, they basically treat doctrine with, with contempt. They don't believe in sound teaching they reject sound doctrine instead of proclaiming healthy doctrine and authorial intent they promote their own self-styled novelties get that word novelty methods and doctrines they're always looking for something new they're always reinventing the, the the church into some new form instead of saying we want the church of the new testament we want something contemporary we want smoke machines sorry i didn't mean to say that um they purposely distance themselves from the past they arrogantly endorse newfangled approaches, and that's the form of the new teacher. And all those styles are found in people today, and all those forms are found in the false teachers of Second Peter chapter 2. But Peter wasn't going to give in to their gimmicks. Peter wasn't actually uh, swayed by their glamour or what they talked about at all. He knew them for what they were. They were empty mist or clouds without water. They were... Mist driven by a storm in Jude 12. You say, well, Chris, why should I even want to know this stuff? Listen, the desperation for truth has become such intense that you've got to clean your filter, your mind, the way you think about things, the way you, what you listen to, what you watch, and what you read. And I'm not just talking about Bible studies or church attendance or things that come out of the Scripture. I'm talking about all of life. All of life now is lies are coming at you at every venture, and your filter's got to be clean. You've got to sharpen your lens when you scan the Internet or listen to commentary, have discussion with friends on contemporary issues. You must, write this down, grow in discernment. You need to grow discerning that you're able to determine truth and error in every front and not succumb to the nature of our day, which is a deceptive day. If you've learned nothing from the current social upheaval, we need to grow in our discernment as we deal with people. And P Peter's description of the character and conduct of these false teachers starts in verse 10, it ends in verse 22, and he gives us seven, seven major principles that help us determine what they're like. 
and how we can then change our lens as we look at life, not just within the context of the church, but also as we live in this world today. And what we found is that we've already looked at three of them. We're going to do two more today, and then we'll continue to work our way through this passage as we go verse by verse. But long ago, we looked at point number one, their primaries, their primaries. And that was found in verse 10. And he basically, after he talks about their incredible judgment that God's pouring out on them, he actually describes two ways, two major sins of the false teacher. And that is that they function by their feelings or their lusts and desires. And they also function by their anti-authority. They don't want to submit to anybody. We're starting something new. We're doing our own thing. So their teaching is feelings-driven and lifestyle is anti-authority. Now, do Christians live by truth? Yes or no? Yes. They're guided by truth. Do we have feelings? Yes, we do. But our feelings are never to guide our lives. The truth of God is to guide our lives. And so the second thing he adds in is their pride. And that's verses 10 and 11. The false teachers, he says right there at the beginning there, are audacious, they're defiant, they're so arrogant, they'll do what the holy angels won't do. You say, what's that? Holy angels will not rebuke Satan. Holy angels will not rebuke demons. They'll not command them. Uh, they won't do that, but these false teachers will. We bind you, we tell you what to do, and they're arrogant because they'll do actually what the holy angels will not do. And so also you see how bad they are by what we looked at last week, their suppositions, their presuppositions. Uh, verses 12 to 14 describe the bents of the phony, the bents of them, and that's 12, 13, and 14. They are not merely fallen people who are lost in their sins. They are dangerous to Christians because they tell you, we're going to help your walk with God, but actually what they're going to do is harm your walk with God by getting you to think error, by, to embrace error in some manner. They present themselves as believers, but they're opposed to the work of God. They're opposed and maligning the person of Christ, and they're distorting the only true gospel, and it's getting harder and harder for people to determine what the true gospel is. So watch out for their bents. And now for today... These false teachers, sharpen your lens here for truth and understand, number four in your outline, their passion. And what is their passion? Their passion is, write it down, money. Can you say that with me? One, two, three. Money. That's right. Greed. Look at 14 and 15. Having a heart trained in what? Greed. Accursed children, forsaking the right way, they have gone astray and followed the way of Balaam, the son of Baor, who loved the wages of what? Unrighteousness. He says they're errant, and they have forsaken the right way. Everybody's going, what's the right way? Well, that's obviously there's one way to, to God. That's through Jesus Christ. But the right way is a Hebrew Old Testament description of walking in obedience. That is the right way. As we walk in dependent obedience to the truth of the Scripture, that is the right way. That is the antithesis of how our world thinks. Obedience is not a word that the people want to embrace, and yet that's exactly what God is calling us to, the right way, because the false teachers are trying to get you from obedience. Let me help you with understanding this. Uh, they're, they're telling you this, a couple things, what, what you're seeing here is that all who call themselves Christians are not on the right way. 
there are too many make-believers who teach that obedience is optional instead of a part of our new nature that wants to follow Christ. This is, this is the opposite. This is how the world looks at you. They look at you as people who are rigidly following a set of rules and you're going to work your way to heaven just like every other religion. That is not Christianity, my friends. Christianity is totally different. Christianity is God redeems you and then regenerates you. When he regenerates you, he gives you a new heart. That new heart desires to obey. So we follow from a new heart that wants to obey, not has to obey. Are you getting it? That's true Christianity. But false teachers will say, if you say to people that they have to obey, then you're teaching them uh, legalism. And they call obedience legalism. Listen, obedience to preference is legalism. Obedience to principle is not legalism, especially if it's motivated from a heart that wants to obey. It's not an arrogant heart. It's not a proud heart trying to put you know, themselves on display. Obedience comes from the heart as Christians. And these people on this world are not on the right way. They are not being obedient. They're not following that. And the false teachers are, are encouraging that. We want you off the path of obedience into the wrong way of disobedience, of doing anything that's opposite. Now, the world, again, is opposed to Christ and being the only way. They're opposed to the gospel. But that's even stronger with false teachers. An example of a false teacher is Elimus, the magician who uh, turned to the proconsul away from the faith. And so Paul said to him in Acts 13.10, listen to the words of Paul. He says, you are full of all deceit and fraud. You son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, Will you not cease to make crooked the straight ways of the Lord? You see that? They're moving away from a path of dependent obedience upon the Lord. And these false teachers and most of the messages you hear today are twisting anything to get you to disobey, anything to get you off the path of dependent obedience, motivated from your heart to please the Lord. Anything. Now, as a Christian, they, they can mess with you if you're a so-called Christian or you're almost Christian, they can actually destroy you, false teachers. So beware. They're deadly people. Now, when it comes to finances, these false teachers are driven by greed. Now, real ministry involves money. It does. But understand, the false teachers are in it for the money. They're, they're motivated for the money. They, they minister only for money. Look what he says in verse 14 at the very end having a heart trained in, say the word, greed. Say it one more time, everybody. A heart trained in greed. Now, you're in the warm service, so you're really supposed to answer. So, And then he says, accursed children. Now, they're not interested in accomplishing worship. They're only interested in accumulating wealth. They don't want to accomplish worship. They want to accumulate wealth. So much so, verse 14 says they're trained in greed. Now, trained, this is a very scary phrase. Look at how William Barclay, one commentator, actually describes this word trained. He says, the word which is used for trained is the word which is used for an athlete exercising and training himself for the games. The false teachers have actually trained their minds to concentrate on nothing but gaining more. They've deliberately fought with their conscience until they destroyed it, and they intentionally squashed their guilt until they smothered it. They have purposely trained themselves to concentrate on how to get more what? Money, they have trained themselves in the techniques of sin, particularly the sin of greed. False teachers and the messages of this world 
are working out. They're pumping weights so they can figure out how to fleece God's sheep. They've exercised to the point of exhaustion. They've become well-toned. They've got a six-pack of greed. They're pursuing it with everything they've got. False teachers are out for what they can get. Listen, do you, I mean, come on, it's true. Do you accidentally show up at the gym? Anybody? Nobody accidentally shows up at the gym, right? When you go there, it's intentional, right? What he's saying here, this is not my words, but his words, they're trained in it. They are exercising so that they can figure out how to manipulate people so they can get more money. It's all driven by greed. And when you've seen those guys in the past on television, you're going, yeah, this is all about greed. You hear them all the time. You know, you got to give me money so I can have my new Learjet and all that kind of garbage, right? Are you with me? You've seen that. But it's even on a smaller scale in places that we don't see today. And that is so disgusting that Peter shouts, accursed children. And you say, why does he say that? Well, because children are kind of known for the dominant force in their lives. And the dominant force in their lives here as these false teachers is greed. And that means they're dominated by the curse of hell. The curse of hell itself. That's a Hebraism expression, accursed children, that basically says this is what they are most known for, their greed. False teachers have left the right way. They're stopping this dependent obedience upon the Lord and have intentionally pursued error. And basically, Peter is saying, look, right now, Peter, do you know someone who's like this? Now, do you know someone like this? Do you know someone who's driven this way, driven by greed, driven by money? Peter says, well, yes, I do. And let me give you an illustration from the Old Testament. He's a prophet, and his name was Balaam. Take a look at verse 15. Forsaking the right way, they've gone astray, having followed the way of Balaam, the son of Baor, who loved the wages of unrighteousness. Now, Balaam was a prophet who preferred wealth over faithfulness. He was supposed to be a prophet of God, but he loved money more than God. He's willing to pursue his fortune, verse 15, gaining the wages of unrighteousness. Now, it's not wrong for people to be supported in ministry, but it is wrong if that's their goal. If their goal is wages, then it's wrong. The, instead of obeying God, Paul and, and Peter and, and all the writers of the New Testament are talking about these kind of men. And Balaam here was tempted uh, God's people with immorality, and he was driven by greed. He did those two things. And in Numbers 22 to 25, Balaam is a so-called spiritual leader who was rebuked by God through his donkey. That's how bad it was. His donkey had to say something to him. He received a rebuke for his own transgressions. Look at verse 16. For a mute donkey, speaking with a voice of a man, talking to him, restrained the madness of the prophet. Now, if a donkey's got to rebuke you, you're in big trouble, correct? And so this is showing the foolishness of Balaam and the foolishness of all false teachers. This story is a classic example of a spiritual leader who was motivated by greed. And Balaam was hired by Balak, uh, the king of, of um, Moab, to curse the people of Israel as they uh, wandered in the wilderness. And King Balak, he saw Israel as an undefeatable army. They, there was no way he's going to defeat them. They could not be defeated. So he thought, well, I'll defeat them then instead of in an army at war, I'll defeat them spiritually. So I'm going to hire Balak, and there were prophets for hire in those days. 
And so Balaam was his target to have him curse this people. And Balaam knew it was wrong to cooperate with this process, but in his heart, he wanted the money. And so therefore, this was not an accident. This was not Balaam was deceived. He's not a victim here. As you read Numbers, you find Balaam knew the truth of God. He knew the will of God. He deliberately abandoned the right way in obedience, following independent obedience, and went astray. He's the perfect illustration of these false teachers who basically are driven by greed. And the outset, God told Balaam not to help King Balak. And at first, Balaam obeyed, but then he got worn down. The King Balak sent more princes and offered more money. And you know what Balaam said, in a sense, and as you walk through Numbers, you see this. He goes, let me pray about it. Listen, friends, do you have to pray about doing something that's morally wrong? No, you don't have to pray about it. It's morally wrong. You don't do it. Are you with me on this? Please. Okay? When, when, so, when, the, when the lady at the you know, cash register gives you $100 too much, do you have to pray about returning that? Let me pray. Maybe that's a gift from... No! Give the money back! It's not yours. Understand, from the outset, God told him no. Now, the second time, he's tested again, but this time, God tests Balaam and allows him to go with the princess. This was God's permissive will designed to see what the prophet would do. Listen, there's a point here. Sometimes God does not stop you with a bad decision. Sometimes God does not stop you from a bad decision or a bad direction. Sometimes, you know, you're making out in the back of the car. He's not going to stop you from going all the way. Sometimes he's not going to stop you from signing that document that you know is deceptive, but you sign it anyway. Sometimes he doesn't stop that process. You need to stop that process. And Balaam jumped at the chance. And then God rebuked the disobedient prophet through the mouth of the donkey. And Numbers 22, the donkey even said, Am I not your donkey? I mean, what am I doing talking to you, telling you not to do this? And Isaiah even says, The ox knows its owner, the donkey its master's manger, but Israel does not know. My people do not understand. So learn from your pets, people. They know who feeds them, right? They know who's in charge. Now a cat doesn't. We know that. They think they're in charge, correct? But understand, and they would probably go along with this deal because it would be more food for them. But God permitted Balaam to set up his altars and offer his sacrifices. But you know what's great? God did not allow Balaam to curse the people of Israel. In fact, it even tells us Deuteronomy 23 why. God turns Balaam's curse into a blessing. Deuteronomy 23, verse 4, And behold, they hired against you Balaam to curse you. But nevertheless, the Lord was not willing to listen to Balaam But the Lord your God turned the curse into a what? A blessing for you because the Lord your God, I love this, what? He loves you. He loves you. Balaam wasn't able to curse Israel, but Balaam was used in an evil way to actually hurt Israel. You know what he did? He taught Balak, the king, he said, all you got to do is get them to be friendly. All you got to do is get, you know, get the, uh, you know, Israelites, have them over for dinner. Have them over and uh, kind of get them interacting with you and uh, all that kind of stuff and building a relationship with you and, uh, you know, start to kind of participate in our little festivals, our little pagan festivals. And all of a sudden, Numbers 31, verse 16, it says, These caused the sons of Israel through the counsel of Balaam to trespass against the Lord. So the plague that God brought against them was among the congregation of the Lord. Balaam encouraged the Israelites to practice idolatry and immorality 
and intermarriage in a, in a second attempt to destroy them. And this time it worked. This time it worked. Instead of living separately, Israel compromised. They enjoyed the Moabite feasts. They ultimately began to intermarry. They began to participate in the pagan ceremonies and then pagan orgies. And as a result, God disciplined his people and thousands of Israelites died over the influence of Balaam. All because of money and greed and because of what he did. And what's the passion then of the false teacher? The mission of the false teacher and the mission really of most of the messages you're hearing in the world, even outside the church today. There are two driving influences, greed and lust. Write them down. Dads, dads, start watching television with your kids and pay them a dime, a quarter, whatever you determine every time they identify the motive of greed or the motive of lust that's selling something, I guarantee you'll go broke. Balaam loved money. He led Israel into lustful sin. He was a man who had the message of God, and yet he led people away from God. And as you read his oracles, you, you, gotta help, you can't help but be impressed with his eloquence. Uh, he deliberately, though, disobeyed God. And what's even sadder is his response. You know what he said in response, Balaam? He responded, I have sinned. He didn't mean it when he said it. He just said, I've sinned. And then in Numbers 23, he even prayed, let me die the death of the righteous. But he was unwilling to live the life of the righteous. And so because Balaam counseled King Balak to seduce Israel, God ultimately judged him. And uh, Balaam was slain by the sword when Israel was defeated by the Midianites in Numbers 31. The main lesson here is Balaam rebelled against the word of God and the will of God. He, he rebelled. And just like false teachers, Peter describes Balaam knew the right way, but he deliberately chose the wrong way. He wanted to increase his portfolio, and no doubt he had the gift of God. I, I, no doubt, because he is actually responsible for some uttering some beautiful prophecies about Jesus Christ. But he prostituted that gift. He misused that gift to gain fame and particularly fortune. You know the story of the bank officer who told his and asked his junior officer, said, would you, would you alter the books if I gave you $50,000? And the junior officer thought for a minute and said, yeah, I guess I would. And then the senior officer said, well, would you do it for $100? And he said, who do you think I am? The junior officer says, do you think I'm some sort of common thief? And the senior officer said, no, we've already established that you're a thief. We're just dickering over the price. Everybody has a price. And those who are greedy are going to somehow succumb. When that price is met, the greedy ones will do whatever's asked, even revolt against the God they love. And at the end of verse 16, do you see what Peter called this attitude? He called it madness. You see it at the end of verse 16? Madness means totally deranged. Totally deranged. How's your thinking about wealth and money? Just, 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 just for a moment, do you have God's heart over money? I mean, to pursue his heart, understand you first have to be a Christian. You've got to be born again. You've got to be a part of the family. You've got to know Jesus Christ personally. And then you've got to be filled with the Spirit because you can't do any of this in your own strength. You can't live for Christ in your own strength. And you can't definitely deal with money in your own strength. So then you can pursue God's heart. Well, what's God's heart? Well, let me give you three simple things. GPS, write them down. GPS, you know, you want God's direction in this financial world. Then GPS, first would be giving. G is giving, giving substantially, giving sacrificially, giving. We are, we're, God's a giver. God gave. God gives. We need to be givers as well. 
giving to others, giving to the Lord's work, giving. We need to be sacrificial in our giving. It should be a part of us. It's, it's not something that we're grinding to get to, but something that is a joy out of our hearts. And then P, GPS, P would be purposed or planned. Either one is works. Planned. You, 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 you understand your finances, your money are given to you by God as a stewardship, and you plan for them to be given to his purposes, to accomplish you know, the things that are right and just in this particular culture. Maybe you give secretly, maybe you help a missionary, maybe you take care of some things, maybe you've got a good plan for your home, whatever, but it's planned. And then S is self-controlled or steward. You steward. You're, there's a stewardship. You have a budget. Every cent of what he provides for you is wisely distributed so that it accomplishes his purposes and he's glorified in the process. You're not buried in debt. That's GPS, giving, purpose, and scholarship. That would be God's heart on finances. But that wasn't Balaam. Balaam thought that he was doing wise, and after all, he was taking advantage of an opportunity that he never came around, you know, would never come around again. But all his choices were rebellion against God. All of them. And, and understand, God said that's madness because it can only end in tragedy. Listen to these verses again, 14 through 16. It says this, Having a heart trained in greed, accursed children, forsaking the right way, the way of obedience, they have gone astray, having followed the way of Balaam, the son of Baor, who loved the wages of unrighteousness, but he received a rebuke for his own transgression, for a mute donkey speaking with the voice of a man restrain the madness of a prophet these false teachers like balaam forsake the right way the way of obedience the way of dependent obedience the right way is obedience to god's word and balaam deliberately forsook the scriptures he knew what he was doing and when false teachers manipulate the bible what they're trying to do is saying i can still be saved i can still be considered a christian but live any way i like that is contrary to the scripture they read into the bible they make it say what they want and balaam did the same thing too and they will suffer for this choice. And the choice that they choose leads them to eternal torment. It's pretty bad, friends. In fact, you say, Chris, this is, this is not a big deal in our world. In fact, you know, greed is a good thing. I mean, that's what they're saying to us now. Listen, this is a very, very bad thing in God's eyes. You say, how bad is it? Point number five in your outline, the penalty. The penalty. Verse 17 tells you, just how bad they are, how empty they are, and how really serious this is. He says, there are springs without water and misdriven, verse 17, by a storm, for whom the black darkness has been reserved. These false teachers give nothing of substance because they have nothing to give. They're like a dry well. They can't satisfy. They're, a mist is a better way, of, uh, another way of saying a cloud or like fog, etc., a mist. And then he says also that they're uh, springs. These are basically poetic figures saying, representing water, which is, of course, the most treasured and valued and precious commodity in the Middle East. And Peter's two metaphors here describe false teachers as clouds that give no rain and as springs that give no water. They're not going to satisfy. They're not going to have the answer. They're going to mislead you. They're going to actually ultimately teach you that this is the way of heaven, but it's actually not going to be the way of heaven. You're going to end up in eternal torment and hell. And these false teachers may appear incredible, the whole imagery here, like a powerful storm moving the sky, but basically they're not going to satisfy your heart, and they're going to lead you down the wrong path 
like a spring without water and a cloud without rain. I was on a hike once when I was uh, in junior high. We were trying to go through a desert, and we were trying to identify certain spots in this flat landscape by using maps to identify the hills all around us. We had a geography teacher who was an ex-Marine. He's pretty much out of his mind, but uh, he would send all these junior hires out in the desert. You know, the first spring that we had was gushing water, gushing. And we had six more springs that we're supposed to find every two to three miles by using all the peaks and to kind of find our location and, and find where these springs were. We'd go to the, spring, the next spring, and again, the first one was gushing. We were drinking the water. It was gorgeous stuff, and we filled up our canteens we're like it's a party. We got to the first spring, and it's dry. We get to the second spring two miles later, three miles later, and it's poisoned. We're out in the middle of there over and overnight. We finally get to the, the final spring, and it is also dry, and we are needing water. You ever been in that situation where you're desperate for water? That's what these false teachers do. They're going to put you to a point where you're starving for water. No satisfaction, and they're going to lead you down the wrong road. We, we made it, by the way. We're okay. But like a mirage in the hot desert, these false teachers promise all this stuff, and they don't deliver anything. And, and here's their crime. Are you getting the crime? They're telling people, this is how you can go to heaven when it actually leads to hell. And as a result, it says at the end of verse 17 that the black darkness has been reserved for them. Do you ever make a reservation at a hotel? Okay, they've got a reservation, but it ain't no hotel. They have a reservation. The black darkness is eternal torment in hell. Matthew chapter 8, verse 12, look at it. It says, we'll be cast out of outer darkness into that place where there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Look at Jude 13. From whom the black darkness has been reserved forever. Peter says, this blackness, verse 17, is reserved for them. That's their hotel reservation. And the tense of reserved is that it was reserved in the past and it is now continually waiting for them. And understand blackness here it has been kept for them. This is hell, the darkness of hell. It's not a room without light, friends. It is a fierce, thick, comfortless, dark isolation that endures throughout eternity, never any light. You're tormented, you're tortured, like you're burning alive, and there's no light ever. That's hell. And includes pain and suffering. And all those without Christ will be in this darkness forever. Listen, you don't, you know, you say, well, all my friends are going to hell, I'll go to hell. Listen, you don't hang with your friends in hell. You're not having a party and beers with your buddies. You're in torment alone forever in black darkness. Listen, let me ask you this. Are you known for truth or lies? Even as a kid, maybe some, one of your kids is honest and the other one's got a real propensity. Understand, this is a serious issue. Are you lie to others? Do you lie to yourself? Do you love the truth? Are you pursuing deception? Are you making decisions where truth is secondary and then opinion, comfort, dreams are primary? Let me give you an illustration. Uh, this may sound funny, but I'm okay if you want to move away from California. I am, under one condition, that you go to a solid Bible ex exposition, sound doctrine church. But if you move away and you go to some other church, you're, you're, you're actually cursing yourself. Do you understand that? You're damaging your spiritual life by not making a decision about Tennessee, Texas, Idaho, Pico Rivera, Maui. It doesn't matter. 
If there's not a solid Bible teaching church there with a community of people who are born again, you are making the worst mistake of your life. Please believe me. It's not about Faith Bible Church. It's not about Lee. I'm okay. I suppose, and I, I, I'll never leave California, but, I'm, you know, Newsom and me, we're going down. Okay. But understand, if you go somewhere else, if you're making that on the basis of comfort or emotion or this is going to be better or eco- economics, but you don't have a solid church to go to, then you're making a bad decision. You're not making it on truth. You're making it on the basis of preference. And that's a bad decision. You need to go somewhere that's solid. And friends, I I just told you biblical truth. I didn't tell you my opinion. You need to be under the truth of God's word. You need to be in that place. Please, please think that through. Uh, There are people's lives, your children, your relatives, and your own marriages that are at stake. So letter A, clean the lens of your discernment, would you? Paul prays in Philippians chapter 1, verse 9, And this I pray, that your love may abound still more and more in real knowledge and all discernment. God wants you to mature in the application of biblical knowledge and grow in your recognition between truth and error. He wants that, and he desires that. So the question is, can you? Can you say and explain to somebody what is genuine salvation? Can you do it in an accurate manner? Can you do it in a way that you know it's the truth? Can you determine and explain why the gift of tongues is apostolic or women can't be elders or an improper focus on social issues can undermine the gospel or God is absolutely sovereign in salvation but you're still responsible to respond, that discipleship is not an option, that ministry to the body is expected by every believer? Can you explain that theologically? If you can't get a theology, get the handbook, uh, Moody Handbook of Theology for latest edition and start reading and get discerning. Understand the truth. Just because you go to a Bible teaching church doesn't mean that you embrace the truth enough to have discernment. You've got to inculcate that into your own study and your own understanding with God's people. Letter B, filter the input you receive from every source. Wisdom dictates that I plead with you, please stop watching, listening, and reading to so much deception, even secular. You can't handle it. I can't handle it. Listen, today truth is called relative, and lying is normative. Reporters and bloggers don't have to be objective. They're encouraged to be subjective and tell their own opinion. If you drink in 10 minutes of Bible study, and then you listen to 55 minutes of lies and deception from the Internet, which is designed to undermine God's truth, then ultimately you're going to live by fear and embrace some sort of wrong thinking. You're going to. You're going to. Give your life to him in worship. What does that mean? Look at Romans chapter 12, verse 1 and 2. Present your bodies as sacrifice, a living sacrifice, which is your worship. And what's the result of that and part of that is do not be conformed to this world, but be what? Transformed by the renewing of your, say it, mind, so that you will prove what the will of God is. You'll demonstrate that. You'll live out God's will, which is good, acceptable, and perfect. You cannot renew your mind if you're saturating your mind all day long in error. And if some of you are going, I wonder if he's talking to me. I am talking to you. This is speaking to you. You can't handle so much deception, so much distortion. Read the word. Let that be primary. And let her see, 
Grow convinced that Christ and the gospel are the best answer. You and I need to understand the truth since it's the truth that, which tells us about Christ. But when you're dealing with somebody who's like kind of off-center, hey, don't argue their off-centeredness. Figure out if they know Christ. Figure out if they know the, the, the Christ of the Bible. First ask, do you know him? Do you know him personally? The Christ of the Bible, the one who's God, the one who's born a man, lived a perfect life, offered himself as a substitute to take our punishment to basically God's punishment for our sin upon the cross, rose from the dead, ascended into heaven, and now lives to provide salvation is the only way who could basically redeem you and uh, regenerate you so you can turn from your sin and repentance. You can depend on Christ by faith, who worship Christ with your entire life. You follow him as Lord. You love him as your first love. You exchange all that you are for all that he is. Is that you? Because if that's not you, then maybe it's you who need this, not just your friends, to find the truth and to find real forgiveness, to find a real relationship with your living creator and to understand where your hope is in heaven can only come through him. Let's pray together, shall we? Heavenly Father, thank you again for your word. We pray, Father, that you would use your word to transform us and to help us to be more discerning about uh, the errors of our day that are flying at us from every quarter. And Father, we pray that you would help us to put on the lenses of your word and see through that to grow deeper and sharper, that they would get clearer and clearer. And Father, we would ask too that if there are any here who have deceived themselves and to think they're a believer because they know about you or they have Christian family or they prayed a prayer once, Father, help them to see, expose them, open their heart so that they could then respond to you and know what it is to have a genuine relationship and no longer be hating you or doing their own thing like Nikolai was doing, but, Father, that they could actually submit to you and depend upon you and rely only on you and you and your salvation and to be born again. Father, we pray this so you'll be glorified. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening today. Sermon audio from the last three years is available by podcast, and a larger archive from Chris Mueller and Faith Bible Church can be found at media.faith-bible.net. And if you would, please leave us a review on iTunes. It helps a lot. Thanks, and have a great day.